Shabbat Shalom. Romans chapter 11 today. It's going to be a two-part on Romans 11. But before we get into the scripture, I wanted to make a, an announcement about Sukkot. Um, that if anybody came and spent Sukkot with us last year and that you would like to stay in the same site that you did last year, then please email us at info at regarding your site for Sukkot. Because before you know it... We'll be there. But let's turn to Romans chapter 11. Like I said, this will be a two-parter. Of course, this is the chapter when we're talking about Israel. So in our study so far in the book of Romans, hopefully, hopefully, we're awakening to the fact that we've inherited many, many doctrines and ideas about Romans that were in fact not included or rooted in any textual witness, but we inherited them as traditions, many of them traditions that were passed down from our fathers and we thought were in the book of Romans, but in fact were not as we've dug further and further in the text. On the flip side of that, hopefully as we're progressing through the chapters, we're seeing that there are buried treasures that have been unearthed by not only looking at the text, but by understanding the history and the context and the language of what's going on as we go through the scriptures. And when we piece it all together, then we get the revelation for, I believe, this generation. Because so much was being hiding right under the surface that just needed a little bit of patience as we dig through the text. So today, what I would like to do, if you'd let me, is look at Romans chapter 11 as a perfect, perfect tapestry. But it's the tapestry of the garment of Israel. It's the tapestry of the garment of Israel. It has no seam. It is a seamless garment. Right there, by saying that, I've gone against 2,000 years of church doctrine. Because church doctrine establishes that the garment of Israel was torn at the resurrection of Yahushua and it was sewn back with the establishment of a new Gentile church or the spiritual Israel. You have a garment that was torn and there was law before and now the garment has been re-seamed and stitched back through the resurrection of Christ, and now the garment is a garment of grace. So regardless of how you put it, any church doctrine when it comes to the garment of Israel is a garment that has been torn and sewn back together by the traditions of men. But we're going to learn that the garment of Israel in the revelation of Yahushua is a seamless garment. It is a Malkitzedic Kohen Haggadol high priest garment that cannot be torn. 
It cannot be torn if it's truly going to be the high priest's garment. And that garment is going to clothe and cover Israel. And when I speak like that, many psalms, many scriptures are coming back to you. As you remember, Yahuwah always talking to his people, his children, saying that he would clothe them and cover them and spread his wings over them. Israel has always been about Yahuwah clothing and covering his people with a seamless garment. By understanding that, we're beginning to see what is about to be unveiled in this 11th chapter, one of the most important chapters in the whole of the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, when it comes to understanding who are the people of Yahuwah. Who are they? Is it the Jews? Is it a synagogue? Is it the church? Is it the Baptists? Is it the Lutherans? Is it Calvary Chapel? Who are the people of Yah? The people of Yah are the un... What? Cloaked the garment of Israel without seam, without stitch. So as we go on first now, we can see that in fact, when we look at this garment of Israel with no seam, there is no Old Testament, there is no New Testament. Well, that's hard for people. There is no Old Testament. That is just a piece of paper inserted into your Bible with English text on it. But within the, in the text of Scripture, there is nothing where it says Old Testament. There is nothing where it says, no verse where it says New Testament. These are fabrications or inventions of religious men. Okay? So we're going to look at the text. We're going to tear out the pages that men have inserted to try and put a seam there and see that this is a seamless garment. It is one book. It begins in Bereshit, Genesis, and it ends in Giliana, Revelation. It's one book for one people. Simply that. Just like any book that you pick up off a shelf, you start at the beginning and you read it through. You don't pick it up three-fifths of the way through in the book of John and start reading because you will end up with a faulty, faulty premise and therefore a false conclusion and you'll all end up going into what? Doctrines and traditions of men. There is no Old Testament. There is no New Testament. We will find in this seamless garment there is no Gentiles, there is no Jews, there is no synagogue, there is no church, there is no Christianity, there is no Judaism. There is just one seamless priestly garment of Israel. It is untorn and it is going to be draped around the remnant community, the faithful, or as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 verse 16, the Israel of Elohim. The Israel of Elohim. Now that's a scriptural term. The Israel of Elohim, the one new man, Galatians, Ephesians, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 12. One new man. That's who we're looking at. Yahushua said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's who he was sent for. He wasn't sent to the pagan Gentiles in Rome. 
He wasn't sent to the pagan Gentiles in Ephesus. He was sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His words, not my words. And that is a clear lens from which we should view Scripture. In chapter 11 now, as we go on this amazing, amazing adventure of Revelation, this most important chapter in the New Testament, I think, when it comes to the garment of Israel, we're going to see that it's going to be detailing Israel's At the time of the writing of this letter, it's going to be detailing Israel's current rebellious status and brings a light to a related Gentile problem. This apparent Gentile problem that was rearing its ugly head in the congregations in Rome after the edict of Claudius, as I've mentioned several times, had lifted. And now this Gentile problem is rearing its ugly head as Jews that have been vanished and taken out for a decade are now returning back to Rome and they're seeing now that their synagogues have been infiltrated by what they believe are Gentiles because they don't understand that this is the returning house of Israel that had been scattered into the nations after the Assyrian invasion. Ten northern tribes had been scattered to the nations. They now had returned with the revelation and acceptance of Yahushua as Messiah. And they were now in the congregations, those once Jewish congregations that had been vacated at the Edict of Claudius, and now the Jews coming down from Jerusalem who had not embraced Yahushua. They had rejected Yahushua. They didn't understand what Paul was communicated. They looked at them and they saw that we have a Gentile problem. But in fact, we don't have a Gentile problem. We have a problem that some branches have been broken off and have been burnt in the fire. And Paul's going to go on now to bring forth insight and revelation to what is actually happening at present at the time of the writing of this letter. Because the Jews were returning to Rome to find again that the synagogue landscape had been transformed into what they believe was a Gentile landscape when in reality it was the return of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that they no longer, these unregenerate Jews, they no longer had place within the synagogues of which they once ruled. Because now those synagogues were being ruled by the Holy Spirit and by the revelation of Yahushua. And they had rejected that, so they had lost their place and they had lost their position and they did not know how to deal with this Gentile problem. So Paul's going to set them straight. He's going to set them straight. Now some Gentiles, as we should say, ten Israel or Ephraimites, were tempted to believe that because most of the Jews had rejected the Gospels, these returning Israel Israelites, they believed, they were tempted to believe that because the Jews had rejected the Gospel, that Yahweh had in fact rejected them and that he would, had replaced them with a new people A new faith not patterned after the Torah. There were some that were tempted to think that. But Paul 
condemns this thought and in turn brings forth the revelation that was in fact even hidden from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah didn't even have the revelation that you and I are about to see in this 11th chapter. The prophet Zechariah didn't even understand when it was shown to him who the olive tree was. He didn't understand. And we're going to see that most probably in chapter part 2 of chapter 11. But we can see the revelation is very deep. I say then, did Yahweh cast away his people? By no means. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham. I'm actually of the tribe of Benjamin. Yahweh has not cast away his people, whom he foreknew and chose beforehand. Now, careful of the knee-jerk reaction to go into a 16th century theology there, because he's not talking about Armenianism and Calvinism, and that's the knee-jerk reaction. But he's writing this letter a long time before that. And he's not talking about individuals. He's talking about a national status. So we can get very caught up in church doctrine and start to go, oh, we're talking about foreknowledge and election. Let's talk about, like we've touched on previously, Calvinism and Armenianism. But we're talking now not about individuals. We're talking about national corporate Israel, aren't we? Context is everything. Yahweh has not cast away his people whom he foreknew and chose beforehand. Do you not know what the scripture says of Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet? How even he pleads with Yahweh against Israel saying, Yahweh, they have killed your prophets and overthrown your altars and I alone am left. Then they even seek my life. So what's this all about? If Yahuwah were really intending to only save a handful of Israel and cast off the whole of Israel, the whole of Israel just cast them off as some of them were saying, then why on earth did he choose an Israelite, the Apostle Paul, to be the Apostle to the nations? It makes no sense. Of course. So that's how he opens up his letter. Look, I'm an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. No, he didn't cast off Israel totally. If he did, why on earth would he choose an Israelite like me to proclaim this message? Why not just go up to Rome and and knock a pagan priest off of his horse on the way to um, sacrificing a child at the Easter service? Why not do that? Why would he take all the trouble to knock me off of my horse as I was on the road to Qumran? Damascus. See, he's making his point here. You see, the majority of um, theologians right here, they draw a faulty conclusion that Yahweh has abandoned Israel for a new Gentile church. Yahweh has abandoned the Old Testament for a new testament of grace. That he's abandoned one set of people and started out fresh with a new set of people. But what does the scripture say about Yahuwah abandoning Israel? 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. For Yahuwah will not, 
He will not abandon his people on account of his great name because Yahweh has been pleased to make you, Israel, a people unto himself. So regardless of how many credentials you have behind your name, what does the Bible say about Yahweh abandoning Israel? What does the Bible say? Yahweh will not abandon Israel. Psalm 94 verse 14, for Yahweh will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Who is Yahweh's inheritance? Psalm 78 verse 71, Isaiah 19 verse 25, and Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 16, Israel is Yahweh's inheritance that he will not abandon. Oh, he may bury his inheritance like a treasure in a field. I think there's a parable about that. And he may wait till his son comes along and has the land redemption rights to go clear the land of all of the shrubs and all of the thorns and the thistles, but he will never abandon that treasure buried within the field, his inheritance. You see, the idea that Yahuwah chose a new way, a new Christian way, a new way of grace devoid of the first three-fifths of the Bible, devoid of Israel, is preposterous. It's preposterous. But if you don't read your scriptures... And you start reading the scriptures a little bit with a daily devotional in John and you never go back to the beginning. You are divorced from biblical reality. You've been cut off from your roots, which he will go into a little bit more in the latter part of this chapter. Amos chapter 3 verse 2. You, Israel, only have I chosen among the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So that's the key. Not a replacement of Israel and the invention of some new Gentile mission, but what? Punishment. Oh, yes. Yahweh will never abandon Israel. He will never abandon them. He will never, ever replace them with a new Gentile church. He will never switch Old Testament to New Testament fabrication. But there's one thing that he will do. He will punish. He will punish Israel. And that is what should be understood when we get into the 11th chapter of, Israel, of Romans, is the punishment and ramifications that come upon Israel. Not the divorce, not the replacement of, but understanding the punishment on Israel. Punishment by the pruning of a tree. Punishment that that tree is pruned almost bare, devoid of branches. Devoid of branches. Branches, of course, in the scripture are often symbolic of people. People are trees. People are branches. And branches that will be pruned back that it looks as if the tree is dead. Looks as if the tree is dead. Look at verse 4. But what says the word of Yahuwah to him? I have reserved for myself, now of course he was talking about Elijah, 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of the Lord. 
Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there was a remnant according to his election by grace or unmerited favor. And if by grace, then it is no more by works. Otherwise, grace is not grace. But if it is by works, then it is no more grace unless work is not work. Now, I had enough problems, I've got to tell you, with the New International Version. But then they had to come out with today's New International Version? I mean, we've got liberal, but now that's not liberal enough. Let's make it liberal on steroids. So today's New International Version is pretty wild. This... I mean, I mean, you thought it was, it, you were, you know, in the proverbial soup. And then you read the today's new international version, you're like, oh my goodness. I wonder what they're going to, wonder what tomorrow's new international version is going to be like. When we get into verse 6, the adverb, the adverb, ukute in the Greek, ukute, meaning no more. What does that mean? Because I'd like to make a little side note to churchmen and to the um, today's new international version. Because look what today's new international version says in its translation of verse 6. I'll read it to you. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Did you catch that? What they're saying is, there was once a time, once upon a time, there was once a time when Yahweh's grace could be earned by human action. That's what they're saying in that translation. That's what they want you to believe. There used to be a time back here when Yahweh's grace could be earned by human action. And you're like, well, that's just wrong. Of course, in Yahusha, your, your action can never earn grace because grace is a free gift. They are setting you up to fall into their doctrinal trap because we all know that it is by Yahusha's blood that we come into relationship and we're like oh we agree but the bible doesn't say what they want you to think it says so they construct it's a false construct based upon a deliberate willful translation pitch because what they do with this adverb ukute no more is lead you down the garden path because we know we who read our Bibles, we know that redemption could never, ever be acquired by human action in the Tanakh, could it? Never. Show me one verse anywhere in the Tanakh, commonly called the Old Testament, where grace can be earned by human action. It doesn't exist. So the way they're translating verse 6 is actually untruthful. But it's deliberate because they want to lead you into their doctrine and they want to construct a false dichotomy of law versus grace. 
but it doesn't exist. Old Testament versus New Testament. But if we're not careful, we fall into their trap. And it is willful. I've got to tell you. Because when you look at the Greek, it's non-existent. And it doesn't take a scholar to be able to say, well, no, you're totally switching what this Greek word, ukute, no more means, because you want to create this false false dichotomy. So let me explain. I hope I'm not losing you with my passion and in going too in-depth in verse 6. But this verse isn't setting up a dichotomy of works and grace. It's not. Verse 6 is not setting up a dichotomy of works and grace, which is what today's New International Version tries to establish. Once there was this works, but now, you know, it's only by grace. Because what happens here, ukuti actually exposes this false construct just by looking at this word immediately exposes it. Because ukute in the Greek, no more, doesn't mean no more as in once it used to be, but now it is no more. That's what they're trying to say that it means. But it doesn't. Do you understand? No more. Once it used to be this way, but now it is no more. And off the sheep go into the false construct. But that is not what the adverb akute means. Not whatsoever. What it means is not something no more as in it used to be, but now it's no more. Akute is a marker of inference in a logical process. That's a lot for a lot of you to be able to comprehend, so I'll say it again. Because it's a lot for me to kind of comprehend, to tell you the truth. Akute is a marker of inference in a logical process, like not. Like not. Paul's communicating that even the remnant in the time of Elijah were the remnant based upon grace, not works. That's what the adverb is communicating. Works never made a person inclusive of the redeemed ever, not even in the time of Elijah. That's what he's communicating. It never did, not even in the time of Elijah, as opposed to the today's New International Version. It used to be, but not anymore. Okay? That was a long roundabout way of explaining something simply. But, you know, that's just me. But does that make sense to you? But this is all based upon them mistranslating this one simple word, the adverb akute, as in no more, but in reality it means not the marker of inference in a logical process. It did not happen back in the days of Elijah, and it ain't happening now because it never did happen in the Old Testament, the Tanakh. He's clearly making that distinction. Logical force is really what he's talking about versus temporal force. Logical force is not, it did not happen, 
back in the days of Elijah, whereas temporal force is what today's new international version is trying to get you to believe that it used to be, but it isn't anymore. Okay? We're going with logical force rather than temporal force with the adverb akute. And you can kind of dig into that. I tripped out on that for about an hour. So that's most probably why I'm spending so much time on it. Because I, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I really was. I mean, I think I was on that one word for like an hour and tripping out on it. And so I'm, I do apologize. You're like, why couldn't he just come out and say it quickly? But that was quick compared to my hour of just like... Oh my goodness, they are deliberately trying to lead me into the, you know. That's how I think. So now let's go on to two more words and see how long we can spend there. <laughs> let's look at the Greek words prognosko, foreknowledge, and ekloge, election. Prognosko, foreknowledge, and the Greek word ekloge, election. Because this, like I said, can push some individuals in wanting to debate Calvinism and Arminianism, the choosing of some individuals for salvation and some individuals for damnation. But, like I said, we're not in the 1600s. We're, in fact, in the first century. And the context is the corporate election of Israel, the people as a whole, not individuals. Because Yahuwah right here, Yahuwah's choosing of Israel as a nation, as a whole, doesn't guarantee blessings and benefits upon individuals. And that's not the context that's going on here. Foreknowledge here is predicated of a whole national group, Israel. But within the nation, the majority are not currently saved. We can see that. So foreknowledge is talking about the nation in the context, not the foreordination of individuals to um, salvation, which is the difference between the 16th century construct. Look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Master, how oft shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him till seven times. And Yahushua saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Remember, in the context, we're talking about Elijah and the remnant, 7,000. So what's going on here? 7,000 7, is representative of what? Of forgiving one's offender. But here, Yahweh is the offended party, is he not? Yahweh has been deeply offended by Israel, so offended that he's actually going to punish them. Not abandon them, but he's going to punish them. So Yahweh is the offended party, and Israel is actually the offender about to be pruned off of the very tree. But Yahweh, look at the teaching, he is willing to what? Look at the teaching of Yahushua. Yahweh is willing to forgive Israel up to 70 times 7. That's what Paul wants to communicate. He's taking 
the teachings of the prophet Elijah back in the Tanakh. He's marrying that with the words of the master. And now he is communicating this to Israel and saying, hey, you've offended Yahweh. And because you've offended Yahweh, because he is so full of mercy and grace, he is going to forgive you 70 times 70, which will bring about the restoration of the whole house of Israel. But in the meantime, there will be punishment and much pruning on your tree. But do not think that this is the replacement of Israel because the whole biblical context of the Bible teaches you he will never abandon you. He's only going to punish you, which is a pruning. But ultimately, he's going to forgive you 70 times 70 and bring in the whole house of Israel and everybody's going to be able to take shade under the branches of that tree. This is what Paul's communicating. And I love the way he takes the text from the Tanakh, he brings it forward, and then he strengthens it with the words of Messiah, and then he serves it up to those who have a blood-tipped ear. But those who have been pruned off of the tree for unbelief are blinded, and they don't understand his words. And that is the problem with doctrine and denomination. Don't understand the words that I'm speaking right now because they have been pruned off the tree and they want to replace rather than understand that they're being punished. The severity of Yahuwah is a very sobering thing. Now we continue on and we can see that Yahweh is willing to forgive Israel up to 70 times 7 because forgiveness is given to the self-multiplying seed of Jacob Israel. Yahweh's never-ending mercy towards his people who seek repentance and restoration with him. Remember, Paul spent three and a half years in Elijah's cave down on Mount Sinai in Arabia reading the triennial cycle, the three and a half year cycle of the Torah before he ever went up to Jerusalem setting out on his commission as the apostle to the ten scattered tribes of Israel in the nations. He had spent that time in Elijah's cave so it makes sense that he would use the words and the surrounding context of the prophet Elijah to bring forth this revelation of the remnant theology in its fullness. Does that make sense? Look at verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained that by which they sought for, for the chosen remnant has obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it was written, Yahweh has given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, even to this very day. Of course, he's talking about Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4, and Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10. And David says, let their shulchan, their table, be made a snare and a trap 
and a stumbling block and a reward to them. Let their eyes become darkened that they may not see and be hunchbacked always. Of course, Psalm 69, verse 22, and Psalm 35, verse 8. The remnant isn't Judah. This is really hard for Christian Zionists. But the remnant isn't Judah. Amos chapter 5, verse 15, it's Joseph. Of course, alluding to Genesis chapter 45, verse 7. Yahweh is willing, listen, Yahweh is willing to prune the tree bare. He's even willing to burn the branches. Amos chapter 5, verse 6. He is willing to prune that tree bare and burn the branches so that the tree looks like it's dead. And then what happens? The monks come along and see a bare tree and they cut it down and they make a tree of their own planting which grows up and bears fruit to itself. And that's what we're recipients of in the 21st century. Because the monks came along, saw the tree pruned bare and the branches burnt that they thought because they were blinded, they did not have ears to hear, they did not have eyes to see and their hearts were darkened, their eyes were darkened, so they chose to try and cut that tree down and in 325 at the Council of Nicaea plant their own tree that then would bear its own fruit which was what? Catholicism, and until the Reformation, then those that would protest the Catholic doctrine. But it's still all under the shade of another tree. That's the tree that should be cut down, come out of her, my people, and return back to the shade of Yahweh's planting, is what Paul's communicating. So now we continue on understanding that the remnant isn't Judah and that Yahweh is willing to prune the tree bare and even burn the branches. Remnant and election theology cannot be divorced from the nation of Israel and fought out against individuals or amongst individuals, which is what Calvinism and Arminianism does, is it tries to take this election theology, divorce it from the nation, and then have it a fight out amongst individuals. And we all get into Calvinism and Arminianism, but in the context of Scripture, it's about the corporate election of Israel. And we're down here in the mud fighting and bickering over individuals. Is he saved? Are you saved? Who's saved? Oh, we're not saved. But it's talking about the nation. Get out of the mud and get back under the shade of the tree. Let's continue on further. In um, Ezekiel chapter 16, 1, this is written. And say, thus says Yahweh to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother, your mother was a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day that you were born, your umbilical cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water for cleansing. This is one of my favorite verses. You were never rubbed with salt nor were you swaddled at all. 
No eye pitied you enough to do any of these things to you to put you out of compassion. No eye pitied you enough to do any of these things to you out of compassion. Instead, you were cast out in an open field, for you were detested on the day that you were born. This verse impacts me so much. I grew up in a loving family. I was breastfed. I had my nappy changed. But this, this, is, this is my life. Not in the natural world, but as a believer in the spiritual world, this is my life. This is your life if you did not grow up in a believing household and if you were not discipled as a child. This is your life. Because my umbilical cord, spiritually, it was never, never cut. I was never washed in the word for cleansing as a child. I was never rubbed as salt and swaddled as prepared to be a living sacrifice and taught that as a child. No, I pitied on me in the days, not when I was a youth. I literally was grown up and thrown out into a secular world as a young child, having to listen to all of that secularism. And I remember sitting in a field as a little six-year-old all by myself, looking up into the heavens, trying to comprehend God and how I got there because nobody was teaching me. But I, I wanted to know. I always knew that there was a God. I always knew that I was created. I always knew that his son had died for me. But I never made it my own because I was never taught. I wasn't saved, but I knew that they were truths, but truths that I had not yet accepted and taken into myself. And I look at this and I look back on that young boy and I think, wow, I was detested from the day I was born cast out into the nations, yet through all of that, somehow he found me, he found you, and now we're here. Let us never let that happen to our children and our grandchildren. Never. Let us never let what happened to us happen to the next generation. That's Yahweh's heart for the grandchildren, for the great-grandchildren. Look at verse 11. Because Yahweh's hardening permanently blinds a person in the sin that they've chosen for themselves. Being turned over to the inability to neither see nor comprehend, Yahweh hands people over to the very sins that they desire, don't they? Have you ever seen that with people? I mean, I have a lot. People that they just start chasing after a particular sin. And you can see on the way, you know, Yahweh may be trying to turn them back, but once they have fallen full over into it, okay? Have you ever seen somebody hand been handed over into sin? I've seen it many times, and I've actually seen it, like I shared before, end in death, because that's when it's fully birthed and fully grown, right? Turns into death. That's what James says. So it's very serious. Hardening isn't an obstacle to Israel, but it is a judgment upon Israel. Verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Let it not be, but rather through their fall, salvation has gone out to the nations for to provoke them to jealousy. That's the whole point. 
Now I go to the Gospels, Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. These twelve did Yahushua send forth, having given command to them, saying, To the way of the nations, go not away. Don't go into the nations, but to the city of the Samaritans, there you go. And be going rather unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Listen, I'll say it again. To the way of the nations, go not away. And into the house of the Samaritans, go not in. Into the house of the Samaritans, go not in. Be going rather unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's where you're supposed to go. To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. And lo, a woman, a Canaanitess, from those borders having come forth, did call to him, saying, Deal kindly with me, sir, O son of David. My daughter is miserably demonized. And he did not answer her a word. And his disciples, having come to him, were asking him, saying, Let her away, because she crieth out after us. What's this talking about? This is talking about the present conflict with the house of Judah and the house of Ephraim. The house of Judah, the Jews, is saying, let the house of Ephraim, cast them away. They have nothing to do with us. They're actually goyim. They're Gentiles. That's what the house of Judah is saying in this parable. And he answering said, I was not sent except for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And having come, she was bowing down to him, saying, Sir, help me. And he answering said, It is not good to take, listen, it is not good to take the children's bread and cast it to the little dogs. What's he talking about? It's not good to take the children of Israel's bread the Torah, and cast it before the Gentiles. There, stigmatize it. That's what he's saying. Because the children is always referring to the children of Israel. He's saying, don't take the children of Israel's bread, which is the Torah, and cast it before the Gentiles, because what they'll do is they stigmatize it. They'll create their own tree. They stigmatize it. That's what you and I are recipients of, a stigmatized message. Now he continues on. And she said, but yes, sir, for even the little dogs do eat of the crumbs that are falling from their master's table. Then, when she did that, it changed everything. Then Yahushua said unto her, O woman, Great is thy faith. Let it be to thee as thou wilt. And her daughter was healed at that very hour. And here's the teaching. You see, the teaching from the Torah may often be wasted on those at home and comfortable in the nations. They don't want to hear it. They're at home and comfortable in the world. They love the world. And you start talking about the Torah to somebody who loves the world, you are literally throwing the children's bread before somebody in the nations. 
this is a treasure. And if you love the world, if you love your job, everything, the world, all the partying and the coffee houses and going out and all your social, if you love all that, then you hate Yahuwah. That's simply it. You can't serve two masters. So if you just feel like you just got to love all that stuff, then you are in the world and you're a carnal believer. And if we try and serve you up the children's bread, you're going to hate it because it means that you're going to have to change your life and you don't want to change your life because you love your life, because you love the world and you love everything that the world has to offer you. And the message of the Torah, the children's bread, is a message that you are an enemy of Yahweh because you're so in love with the world system. Don't throw that bread before people that aren't serious about the faith. It will offend them. It will offend them, and you will make yourself enemies when we're to be what? Peacemakers. That doesn't mean that we, don't, that we compromise the message, but it means that I'm not going to be a Torah terrorist. And it means that I'm going to be wise and I keep my treasure unto myself. And even if somebody asks me of it, I'll deflect unless they come back at me with faith requesting. And then if they come back at me with faith requesting and they're seeking, then I'll wait for a moment when I see tears in their eyes and their spirit is broken and they are receptive. And then I will plant and sow and water but I have people coming to me all the time, and I know they're not serious. They just think I'm weird. Well, what about your faith? I'm not going to share it with you. Oh, I used to. Oh, I got attracted. Or, but no, it doesn't work like that. Maturity has shown me, oh, yeah, you're trying to trip me up, trap me, or make a mockery of me. I'm not going to share you with you at this point. I'm not going to cast it before the dogs. You love the world. You'd hate what I have to share. I can see that so apparent. So let's continue on. And he said unto her, Yes, sir, she said, but even the little dogs do eat the crumbs that are falling from their master's table. Then answering, Yahushua said to her, Oh, woman, great is thy faith. Great is thy faith. Let it be thee as thou wilt. And her daughter was healed at that very hour. So the teachings from the Torah may often be wasted on those at home in the nations. It's not good to take it away from the children of Israel unless it's requested by one from the nations by faith and hearing. And that is the truth, isn't it? Isn't that the truth? How many times have you tried to share your faith with family members? But they love the world. They love the worldly church services. They love the community. It's all about community. Isn't it? It's the community at the coffee bar before the service and after service. It's the community of all of that socialness. It's, you know, the Christian country club. Community, which is worldliness, which is carnality, which is belonging. And they'll hate discipleship. Because discipleship is painful and it costs you. It costs you. So ultimately, deliverance was meant for Israel, the nation, but they failed to receive it. 
Individuals did accept it, but the majority, including the establishment, didn't accept it. Do you think anymore that the establishment will accept the message today? Of course. The establishment didn't accept it then. It's not going to accept it now, right? Judaism, Messianic Judaism, Christian, Christianity are all part of a theological establishment. We have to understand that. It's the individuals from their midst that the Spirit is drawing into the remnant priesthood. Always has been. It's the individuals from the midst of establishment that Yahweh was interested in because the establishment is another tree. Christianity, Judaism, Messianic Judaism, all taking shelter under a false construct. Verse 12. Now, if their temporal fall brought riches to the world, and the diminishing of their believing numbers brought riches to the nation, how much more the fullness of their return from blindness? There's the question. Look at verse 12. The Greek word there, pleroma. Pleroma meaning fullness or completion. What are we talking about? Are we talking about number one, qualitative, or number two, quantitative? Number one, qualitative, or number two, quantitative, in reference to pleroma, fullness or completion, found in verse 12. Of course, I believe it's talking about the quantitative, the full number, a full quota, which is, of course, in answer to Israel's rebellion and defeat, will be her full quota, full restoration, as in a quantitative amount. Yahweh knows what that amount is. Pleroma isn't supporting predestinations of individuals to salvation. It's not used to describe a set number of the elect, rather a full, large number of a great multitude. Now, where would you find that in Scripture? So it's not talking about a set number of the elect, but rather a full, large number or the great multitude that are numbered from all 12 tribes of Israel, fully grafted in from the nations, peoples, tribes, and tongues. You'd have to go to the end of the book, Revelation chapter 7, and you find what? The planting of Israel back under the olive tree. And they're standing on sapphire and glass. And it is listed, what? The 12 tribes of Israel. The full planting, grafting in, back in. This is remnant theology in a biblical context. Verse 13. For I speak to you nations, because I am the apostle to the nations. I magnify my work by explaining this. If by any means I may provoke to emulation those who are of my flesh, and might save some of them, 
For if their temporal setting aside be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them back be but life from the very dead? For the first fruits are holy, then of course the lump is holy. And if the root is holy, then so are the branches, the Hebrew word there, the netzarim, the netzarim, the followers of Yahushua. There's a play on words there. And of course, this is pulling from the Torah, from Numbers chapter 15, verse 18. If you were, were to remember the heave offering, Paul right here is talking about the heave offering in Numbers chapter 15 verse 18. And we know from Revelation chapter 22 verse 16, who's the root? Yahushua is the root, right? So he's talking now, he's talking about two texts. Revelation 22 verse 16, Yahushua is the root. But we've got to go back to Numbers chapter 15, 18 because we're also talking about the heave offering. Because with the heave offering, this is the teaching, you would take the whole of the harvest, you'd take that whole of the harvest and you would grind that harvest into bread. You'd take that whole of the harvest. Remember, we're talking about people. And you would grind that harvest into bread. Do some of you just feel like you are being grinded on? <laughs> I know I do. I am feeling so grinded on right now. And I have to go, okay, I'm part of that harvest. He's taking that whole harvest in of the field. And he is grinding that harvest into bread. And then he's going to take a chunk a chunk of that bread. And that chunk that he pulls off of that bread, what does it represent? It represents the whole harvest. So that one chunk with the heave offering, Numbers 15, 18, that is pulled off of the bread, it represents the whole harvest. And he then lifts it up as an offering before Yahuwah. He's connecting this with Yahusha. He's connecting Numbers 15, 18 with Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. That one piece, Yahusha, that is being offered as a sacrifice sanctifies the whole harvest. That one piece, Yahusha, that's offered up as a sacrifice sanctifies, sets apart the whole harvest. Yahusha came in the flesh so as to represent all of those that he would sanctify, is what Paul's teaching. The one piece sanctifies the whole harvest. We are the heave offering of Yahuwah. Now, if you go back into the Torah, the wonderful mystery is this shalom offering is actually out of sequence. It's out of sequence. If you look at the shalom offering in the Torah Pasha Vayikra, which is the first Torah Pasha in Leviticus, you'll notice that this shalom offering isn't in the place it's supposed to be. And I remember when I first started teaching Torah, I'd be like, why is it there? And then like a couple years later, I'd be like, I still don't understand why it's there. It's like, doesn't make sense. They made a mistake. It's in the wrong place. And there's a couple of places in the Torah when you're doing 
Torah Parsha studies year in and year out, you start to start to see things. You go, well, that's in the wrong place too. And wherever, then after a few years, you know, like seven years down the road, you know, after you've had your time of servitude doing all that stuff, you're like, oh, because wherever it seems to be out of place, that's where the mysteries are. So Yahweh deliberately makes it out of place so that it, what, draws your attention to it, so then you'll dig further and find the teaching. So the Shalom offering in Leviticus, Torah, Parsha, Vayikra, you'll notice it's out of place because this offering is not limited to a Levitical priesthood, but a Malkitzedic priesthood of which the least will be greater than a high priest from Levi. The least in the Malkitzedic priesthood will even be greater than a high priest from Levi. And didn't we hear that in the New Testament? Because we know that John the Immerser was the high priest from the tribe of Levi, but even the least of them will be greater than John the Baptist. The least in the Malkitzedic priesthood will be greater even, the, even than the high priest in the Levitical priesthood. That's the teaching, because now, with this shalom offering being out of sequence in Torah, Parsha, Vayikra, you understand Leviticus chapter 7, verse 14, Numbers chapter 15, verse 18. The law of the peace offering in Leviticus 7, 13 is moved to the end. It's moved to the end of the section. Why? That's what troubled me for so many years. Because ultimately, none of this will come into full revelation until it's moved to the end where the least in the priesthood of Malkitzedek will be greater than the high priest in the, in the Levitical. It's moved to the end prophetically because Yahusha is the end or the goal of the Torah and it finds its fulfillment and fruition only when Yahusha is manifest as that high priest. Because when Yahusha is lifted up as that sacrifice, that piece of bread, he represents the whole harvest and he sanctifies us all because he represents us all. Therefore, we can come back in and graft into the tree and sit under the shade of Israel. And that's what Paul's talking about. But you can never understand this. Not even Zechariah, we'll see next week, could understand this until Yahushua comes into the prophetic forward and then bears the fruit of the reconstruction and reconciliation of Israel. And this is maybe a lot to grab your head around, but really not, especially if you've just spent three and a half years in Elijah's cave reading the triennial cycle of the Torah, which is what this guy had just done. And he was a student of Gamaliel. But we have to get into his mindset because he's not talking to Gentiles in Rome. He's talking to the ten northern tribes that are returning to the tree of Israel. And in the meantime, those that have rejected Yahushua are cut off. The tree is being pruned bare 
and they're being burnt. And the fruit that's being produced is from the grafting in process, which we'll get into next week. This is amazing. But ultimately, to end this part of Romans chapter 11, part 1, is to understand that Yahushua represents the whole harvest of which he sanctifies. And that is why Paul includes the heave offering of Numbers 15, verse 18 here, and connects it in with the revelation that Yahushua is the root that bears the fruit, Revelation 22, verse 16. That's a lot. I hope I didn't lose you. And I, I understand sometimes I get so kind of sucked into the just like the magnificence of it. And then I come here on Shabbat and it, maybe some of you get a little overwhelmed. But I think you understand my passion, I hope. And I think if we spend the time together and kind of chat and whatnot, you can see it's all right there. It's amazing to me. Questions, comments, disagreements, anything not make sense at all? Yes. We'll have a mic on you. Hey, you mentioned when you opened up the teaching that there's not one verse that mentions the dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament. However, in third, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.14, it talks about the veil and the reading of the Old Testament. Okay. However, Paul would not have used that language. First of all, there was no New Testament, and he would have used Torah. Why do you think in the Greek it shows the Old Testament? Or Old I Testament? think we should. Can we look that one up and see what the word is? I'll do, I'll do my homework on that and get back to you on that one next week. Yeah, that's 2 Corinthians 2, 13. 3, 14. Okay, 3, 14, yeah. That's a very good point. The veil of Moses, until they are blinded, they are blinded. Yes, in the back there. We do have one question from the internet audience. And the point of the peace offering, is this what Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 is talking about, where we are now told to give sacrifices to thanksgiving continually. Yeah, let's read that. Let's go there. Let's Hebrews go to Hebrews chapter 13. Let's go to Hebrews 15. 13, 15. Let's back up and go to Hebrews 13, 10. For we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. So we're talking about right here, of course, those up in Jerusalem that are still holding on to the book of the law, rejecting Yahushua as the high priest, and all kept up in the Levitical sacrifices. They have no right to eat of the altar which is outside of the gates, which is the Mikpat altar, the altar of the red heifer on which Yahushua was sacrificed. And there is established the Melchizedek priesthood. They have no right to eat from that altar because then we find for the bodies of those animals up on the mount whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. So he's now showing you the difference between that altar and the altar outside the camp, which is the 
altar of the Paraduma or the red heifer altar. Therefore, Yahushua also, that he might sanctify the people. This ties in with what the person online is saying with the heave offering. It sanctifies the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing our own blood, which suffered, um, excuse me, sanct. Um, Verse 13, therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to Elohim. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices, Elohim is well pleased. The key point here, verse 12, Therefore Yahushua also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So you can attribute this with what we're talking about with the heave offering, but ultimately this one is, com- is connecting back to the sacrifice of the red heifer. That which is shed outside the gate sanctifies all of those inside the gates. The ones that are caught up in the very, very sacrifice, actually we can see the cleansing and the analogy that's spoken of here. But also with the heave offering, you get some similarities and comparisons, the main thrust being that Yahushua is representative of all of those that he came to purchase. And that's the powerful, powerful message. Anything else? Abba, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, Abba. And we thank you for your servant, the Apostle Paul, Rav Sholiak Shaul, Rabbi Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, these words, so many thousands of years ago. But Abba, we know that we are your people. We are the remnant that you have called to come under the shade of the olive tree of Israel. Abba, help us to understand the grafting. Help us to understand in these days and times the most important revelation that is Yahushua that sanctifies all those that he purchased. Abba, let us live a sanctified, holy life before you, worthy of the calling in Yahushua's mighty name. Amen. Amen.